Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Mike Bernhard, a member of the IWW Madison branch. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. And I'm Ann Habel, a retired member of AFSCME 171. This week, we learn about changes in COVID rules for Wisconsin immigrants, take a look at the upcoming primary election, get updates on negotiations at CUNA, MTI, and CASE, discuss a recent action by Voces de la Frontera, present our statistic of the week, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Madison teachers are not happy with the Madison Metropolitan School Department's proposal. Ellen Laluzerne has the story. Citing a 0% increase in the revenue limit for public schools, the Madison School Board on Wednesday approved a 3% base wage increase for staff for the coming school year. Madison Teachers Incorporated is asking for a 4.7% increase. School board members voted 5-1 to one to pass the plan. The only no vote came from Nikki Vandermeulen. She stated that teachers deserve nothing less than a 4.7% increase, saying, quote, I believe in our staff and I would like to keep our staff. I have to vote no, unquote. Two board members said they would agree to reopening negotiations if a budget surplus appears. MTI President Mike Jones said that he was disappointed in the decision saying it could affect staffing and hiring for the upcoming school year. The district's negotiating team told the union that a 3% wage increase for all staff was their final offer on June 10th and again on July 1st, according to district documents. MTI responded to both notices with proposals for ways the district could reach the 4.7% base wage increase and remain within the budget, which was passed by the school board in June, but those proposals were not considered by the district. Increases for a number of other school districts around the state at the 4.7% increase. Those districts include the urban districts that were often used as comparables during pre-Act 10 negotiations. Those districts include Milwaukee, Kenosha, and Green Bay. Districts in our area are also providing, at a minimum, the 4.7% base wage increase. It should be noted that the 4.7% increase is the maximum allowed in bargaining under state law based on the Consumer Price Index. I'm Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. Wisconsin has dropped migrant worker safety protections introduced during the COVID pandemic. Kristen Billings of the WRT News Team has more. Here in a story first broadcast yesterday on Wart's 6 o'clock news. On March 1st, 2022, the Department of Workplace Development issued an emergency rule to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and ensure the health of migrant farm workers. It was an extension of previous emergency orders issued in 2020 and 2021, which were declared as the virus evolved and continued to put workers at risk. Today, that rule is expiring, and it's not being renewed. Gabrielle Monsano is a staff attorney with the Farm Worker Project, a program run by Legal Action of Wisconsin that conducts outreach and provides free legal services to farm workers throughout the state. He worries that the expiration of the emergency rule will make his clients more vulnerable to the virus. Some of the provisions found in the now expired emergency rule 
farm workers will have less protection from exposure to COVID-19, its many variants, as well as from exposure to any novel disease that may appear in the future. The emergency rule expires as the peak of the agricultural season begins. Likely, over 6,500 migrant seasonal farm workers are currently working and living in Wisconsin until November or early December. And historically, uh, these farm workers have had less access to quality health care and higher incidence of certain chronic diseases, which leads to more severe outcomes when exposed to COVID-19. The rule required employers to provide quarantine housing for COVID-positive workers, as well as those who were symptomatic but had yet to access a test. It also required social distancing, regular cleaning and disinfection of common living and sleeping areas, provision of face masks, proper ventilation and hand sanitizer, amongst other regulations. Wisconsin's agricultural industry relies on approximately 5,000 seasonal and migrant farm workers every year. Many of them live and work in tight quarters. They also often have unreliable access to health care and medical treatment, exacerbated by language barriers. These factors make them especially vulnerable to COVID infection and illness, which is a concern with new findings that the BA5 variant has a higher reinfection rate than previous strains of the virus. While concern about the pandemic has waned, Christine Ortiz Newman, the executive director of Voces de la Frontera, an immigrant rights advocacy group, emphasizes that agricultural workers face disproportionate risks compared to the general population. It affects uh, you know, those workers and their families disproportionately, and those are folks who are serving our food, are making it impossible for us to eat. For those of us who are able to do a lot of work at home, we have a debt of gratitude to those um, essential workers. While state-mandated protective measures are no longer effective starting tomorrow, the Department of Workforce Development is working to permanently revise migrant labor rules. Those could potentially include the creation of additional requirements to ensure the health and safety of migrant workers at work sites and an employer-provided transportation and housing. Monsanto says that these permanent revisions are in their early stages, without enforceable protections to fill the place of the expired emergency rule. Here at Legal Action are concerned that there is likely going to be a gap in protection and coverage regarding COVID-19 and all the risks associated. In the interim, labor contractors and farm workers are being encouraged to review public health recommendations issued by the Department of Health Services. Ortiz Newman also stresses that many migrant farm workers aren't aware of their rights, making them vulnerable to the whims of their employers. She says a permanent rule is essential to protecting workers in the long term. And the reason that we have seen the need for strong protections um, is that companies are always going to think about the uh, short-term profits. They're always going to think about the bottom line, and that's going to come at the expense of the worker and their families. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Kristen Billings. Next up, we hear about the partisan primary election taking place in August. There is a partisan primary election in Wisconsin on August 9th. A partisan primary election requires voters to select a party and vote for only people in that party. Citizens must pay attention to the directions in this election for their vote to count. Early voting is going on right now. 
Listeners can see what's on the ballot by going to myvote.wi.gov. The race garnering the most attention is for the U.S. Senate. Unions in Wisconsin and throughout the country are gearing up to defeat Ron Johnson. The first step in this process is to select a candidate who can defeat him. The viable Democratic field for U.S. Senate recently narrowed to one, front-runner Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Milwaukee Bucks executive Alex Lassery withdrew from the Democratic Senate primary Wednesday afternoon and endorsed Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Tom Nelson and Sarah Godlewski also dropped out of the Wisconsin state primary this week and endorsed Lieutenant Governor Barnes. Mandela Barnes answered questions posed by Wisconsin union leaders and members on Thursday, July 28th via Zoom. Lieutenant Governor Barnes said he wants to represent working people by advocating for universal health care. In the meeting, Barnes also said he supports prevailing wages for federal contractors and subcontractors in the Davis-Bacon Act, stronger legislation for organizing, a solvent public U.S. Postal Service, robust benefits for veterans and veterans' hospitals, and legislation that would overturn Act 10. Of the unions who have made endorsements in the primary, a majority have supported Lieutenant Governor Barnes. This includes AFT Wisconsin, SEIU Wisconsin State Council, ASME Council 32, IBEW 2150, AFT 212, and over 160 state and local leaders. The Democratic primary winner will face off against the Republican nominee in November, likely Ron Johnson. That will be a closely watched, tough race. We encourage all listeners to vote in the partisan primary on August 9th. Go to myvote.wi.gov for information. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Office and Professional Employees International Union Local 39 is about to enter their sixth month of contract negotiations with CUNA. What's next for the local union? Six months of negotiations is a long time without an economic offer from the company. It can mean that the company is not taking the union seriously. Labor Radio spoke with Joe Vika, Chief Steward of OPIU Local 39, and asked him for his assessment of the negotiations with CUNA Mutual. In terms of negotiations, we've been uh, hung up for the last uh, couple months on issues of job security, outsourcing, and the contracting of our work. Over the course of the last 20 years, our employer has outsourced or contracted out more than 1,200 jobs um, in the Madison community. When you say contracting out, does that mean they're contracted to local firms to do work or contract any place in the United States or abroad? It goes well beyond the United States. Uh, so CUNA Mutual Group in particular hires hundreds of contractors from outside the U.S. Um, we have hundreds of people who work in places like India uh, doing IT work now. It's not just an issue for uh, CUNA Mutual Group. The way in which employers are using contractors these days really mimics the way that employers outsourced work in the manufacturing industries in the 80s. Major employers are more and more using 
contracting as a way to skip out on paying quality wages and benefits to people in Madison. Is there any federal or state legislation that limits that practice? There is. So the the H-1B1 process is supposed to be a process that makes sure that when companies are utilizing work to be done, it's, it's done in such a way that they exhaust their options within the local labor market. So companies should be looking into the local labor market to verify whether the, there's talent or people to be able to perform that work. And oftentimes what we're seeing with companies, including CUNA Mutual Group, is that rather than looking for the work internally or locally, they're skipping that process and going straight to hiring people uh, internationally. Is the union contract the only effective protection against this practice? Right. And that's why getting the language right regarding job security and contracting and outsourcing of our work is so important. We know that wages and benefits really matter to our employees at CUNA Mutual Group. But without a job, we could have the highest wages in the industry. We could have the best benefits in the world. But if there's only two or three people that are able to receive those as opposed to uh, hundreds of people that should be employed by CUNA Mutual Group, then it all becomes for naught. Avika emphasized the gravity of the challenge to the union. You know, we really cannot continue to see the erosion of our, our bargaining unit because what it looks like in practice is that it's death by a thousand cuts for our members. It's, it is a practice of union busting. It just is a, a form of union busting that ends up taking place over the course of years rather than immediately. CUNA has had a record year, but it's still talking about concessions in other areas of in healthcare and so forth. To what do you attribute this attitude on the part of the company? It's nothing more than what we've seen from corporations all across the United States over the past few years, which is that even though profits have been at a record high almost everywhere, when a company makes record profit, they see their workforce as another place to squeeze additional profits for shareholders. And so to me, it's nothing more than corporate greed. CUNA union members have had three public demonstrations demonstrating significant support for their demands and for the union's efforts to negotiate. What could be the next step? At this point, we're preparing our members for the ability to take more actions if necessary in order to demonstrate to our company and also to the community how important all of our priority proposals are. Is there anything else you wish to add? That I really encourage other people in the Madison area, particularly people who work as office workers, to consider the impact that contracting out has, not just at CUNA Mutual, but at your own workplaces and the kind of impact that that can have. That was Javika, Chief Steward of OPEIU Local 39, representing workers at CUNA Mutual. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. And immigrant rights groups traveled from Wisconsin to Washington, D.C. to demand that the Biden administration keep its promises to end using local cops as immigration agents. Greg Jabowski reports.
on Monday about 50 people belonging to or affiliated with the Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights organization Voces de la Frontera traveled from Wisconsin to Washington, D.C. and protested in front of the home of Department of Homeland Security or DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. There, they joined allies to form a lively crowd of over 100, there to protest the Biden administration's continuation of the 287G program, a program which encourages collaboration between local police and sheriff departments and the Federal Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Section 287G is part of the Bill Clinton-era Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, but it was not implemented until 2002 under the George W. Bush administration. Although the implementation comes by executive order that can be repealed by any president, it has instead been kept in the almost two decades since Bush issued the decree, greatly expanding under the Donald Trump administration and, despite promises, not repealed under Joe Biden. Here is Christine Newman-Ortiz, executive director of Voces de la Frontera, addressing the crowd in D.C. on Monday. And why are we here? We are peacefully here to say you must keep your promise because you are only there, as Eduardo just said, because many people believed your words and turned out because they wanted a change. 287G is a racist program. It legalizes racial profiling. This is an administration supposedly standing up against racism, against white nationalism. Well, prove it, prove it, and 287G now! Eduardo Perea is a member of VOSIS and the Essential Worker Committee. Perea spoke in D.C. on Monday and was interviewed yesterday by Labor Radio. Perea has lived and worked in the United States for over three decades, most recently in construction, and has raised a family in Wisconsin. He was only recently able to receive a green card and can now legally apply for a driver's license. Perea echoes the call for the Biden administration to keep his promise and to end implementation of 287G. This was a promise by President Biden and Kamala Harris when they were running for office. They said it. This is one of the first things we're going to do. We're going to end this contract. It's in our power. We're going to do it. And it's been almost two years and nothing had happened. That's the main reason why we were at, you know, in Washington, D.C. at Mallorca's house. According to the ICE website, its 287G contracts in Wisconsin are extensive, covering nine counties, including Brown, Fond du Lac, Lafayette, Manitowoc, Marquette, Sheboygan, Waukesha, Washara, and Sweetwater counties. This meant that for Perea, traveling north or west of Milwaukee County could subject him to deportation on any routine traffic stop. Although never directly subjected to police action under 287G, Perea said that it made him live in constant fear. Emotionally, it had for years and years and years. And now that, I was, that I'm able to get my driver's license or in the process of getting my driver's license, it's a huge relief. I, I don't know how I did it for those many years, looking at my shoulder every time I drive out of Milwaukee. It's something that nobody should fear. Everybody should be able to go to work, make ends meet, not knowing that you might get pulled over and you might not get back home. That was Eduardo Perea, a construction worker and member of Voces de la Frontera. Voces and Perea have promised to continue pressure on the Biden administration to fulfill its promises to rescind implementation of the 287G Police ICE Collaboration Program. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Members of the United Auto Workers Local 180 struck case in Racine on May 2nd. Frank Emsbach brings you this update. 
It is now the beginning of the fourth month of a strike by members of UAW Local 180 against the case company located in Racine, Wisconsin. Labor Radio spoke with Yassin Mahdi, president of Local 180. We asked him to describe the situation now. We are out on strike right now. The, the company's tactics and unwillingness to negotiate, in my opinion, in good faith, I, I knew that it w- we would be out for a while. Their offers were pretty ridiculous, to put it nicely. Are negotiations scheduled? Negotiations are scheduled to resume August 15th. Monty went on to say that these negotiations will go either very well or very poorly. As Monty has noted in the past, it is his view that the company is not interested in settling, but only wants to get rid of the union. The union, in contrast, is looking to build a future for the workers at Case. In response to the question, what are the union's objectives? Mahdi had this to say. The union's objective is to make Case a career place to work at again, and mm-hmm. not necessarily a stepping stone place. In order to achieve that, the wages have to be commensurate and competitive with other area manufacturers and uh, the benefit. Um, there are a lot of non-economical things, but to summarize it, we want to make Case or CNH a career place to work at, and as I said, not just a stepping stone. Labor Radio asked what the union intended to do to change the balance of forces in the union's favor. Monty explained. Uh, Hopefully, uh, the firm's quarterly earnings for the second quarter will have the shareholders put pressure on them, as well as the customers, the farmers, hopefully will put pressure on them, saying to the dealers, hey, we don't want any product made by scabs. CNH cherishes their customers and their shareholders. Unfortunately, they don't cherish their people that make all of that happen, the workers. It is yet to be determined if the customers and shareholder discomfort with the company's anti-union strategy will be enough to change Case's position at the bargaining table. Listeners can support the workers at Case by donating to the local or visiting the picket line. For more information, go to the union's website at uawlocal180.com. Thanks to Yassine Mahdi, president of Local 180, for this interview. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. The Badger-Hawkeye region of the Red Cross is stonewalling talks with the union. Only two negotiation sections, uh, sessions have occurred over the past year. Labor Radio reporter Ellen LaLuzerne checked in with AFSCME Council 32 staff representative Neil Rainford about the Red Cross's failure to fairly bargain with the workers. Neil, can you tell me what's going on at the Red Cross negotiations? It's been challenging to get the Red Cross to agree to meet with us and to get them to agree to any of our proposals regarding wages, hours, and working conditions. Our most recent negotiation sessions occurred in the middle of July. We were unable to secure any tentative agreements. Instead, what they've proposed is to essentially sidestep negotiations around wages. The proposal that would give the Red Cross carte blanche to make modifications to the wages of employees when it sees fit. You've asked for data about wage levels in our area and they're stonewalling with that request, correct? Now we've asked for comparable wage data and we did that several weeks ago now and the Red Cross has refused to respond instead of made assertions that we don't need that information. 
information. In addition, they've also refused to provide us with any specific wage proposals in the weeks since our mid-July negotiations. The Red Cross has some pretty severe restrictions about what the workers can do regarding getting the word out to the community about what's been going on. Can you address that? The agreement between the parties was modified in our last round of negotiations to put very severe sanctions on any capacity of the employees while the local contract is in place to communicate with the public. That includes limitations on uh, leafleting, on picketing, and certainly it extends to work stoppages or slowdowns or anything like that. Why is the Red Cross in this region being so recalcitrant? It certainly appears that the Red Cross has moved from an organization that really took pride in employing people at family supporting wages to an employer of sort of the lowest common denominator. You know, I tend to believe it's because representatives from many of the largest corporations have taken over the Red Cross's board of directors at the national level. People from places like Apple, Walmart, and Amazon also have representation on the board of directors. And it seems like the direction that the Red Cross has given to its regional negotiators is that they want to follow the employment strategies of to really no longer provide wage increases that accelerate over time and provide incentives for employees to remain with the Red Cross. And instead, they're really focusing on a a low-wage, high-turnover workforce. What are some things that people in the community can do to show support for those workers? When they're giving blood, can certainly let the Red Cross know that they're aware that the Red Cross has not reached an agreement with the region's employees, that they care about those employees and about the relationship between those employees and their own safety when they're donating blood and blood products, and to encourage the Red Cross, especially the managers, when they are in the centers or at the mobile drives giving blood, uh, to encourage those um, managers to uh, to reach a timely and fair settlement with their employees. That was Neil Rainford, AFSCME Council 32 representative, and I'm Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. A Trader Joe's in western Massachusetts voted this week to become the first of the company's locations in the country to form a union. At an NLRB vote certification hearing on Thursday, labor officials determined that the workers at the Hadley, Massachusetts store voted 45 to 31 in favor of the unionization effort. Under the name of Trader Joe's United, employees of the store are not initially associating with any major international labor organization, opting instead to form an independent union. It is the most recent in a string of successful union campaigns to forego affiliating with a major union, which includes efforts at companies like Amazon, Apple, and REI. Workers at the store indicated that the company engaged in union busting in the lead-up to the election, including hiring law firms that specialize in discouraging workers from unionizing and offering enhanced benefit packages in order to head off worker enthusiasm over the union. At least two more Trader Joe's locations have already filed for their own elections, including a store in Minneapolis that is set to vote in early August and a store in Boulder, Colorado that has filed for an election with the United Food and Commercial Workers. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Mike Bernhard. Thanks to editors Frank Emsbach and Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G., reporters Mike Bernhard, Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Hom, 
Scott McCulloch, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Stethen, our reader coordinator, and all of our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304-WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Ann Habel. We also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with our hero, Dave Watts, <laughs> and Professor Bill Clark.